Welcome to The Legal Eagle, where we explore the legal issues of the day. We look into the criminal and civil justice systems, both at the state and federal level. We also talk about the issues facing the courts, the bar, and the judiciary. Today, we welcome John Wynn, Jr., a fourth-generation lawyer and a partner in a law firm that began in 1881 and changed its name last week. And there was a big hoo-ha about that because Mayor Tony Harp declared November 17th the Buckley, Wynn, and Priest Day in the city of New Haven. And that doesn't happen very often, does it, John? No, it doesn't, Marcia, and thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us today. Um, this was the day last week that John Paris was formally and uh, officially named a partner in your firm, and he sort of became part of your extended family. Um, so what a week. Can you tell us about that day? Sure. Uh, yeah, John Parisi uh, started with us in 2007, uh, and actually I think he was with us a little bit before that as a summer intern. Oh, great. Uh, and then he went to work for his father's firm in New Haven for a couple of years, and then he came to, to work with us, uh, and he became a partner uh, about three years ago, and then he became a named partner, an equal partner with John Buckley and I, uh, effective January 1 of 2017. So the firm is will now be known as Buckley, Wynn, and Parisi, and we're very happy. Okay, that sounds great. So that's sort of like the next generation coming in? Uh, yes, that's sort true. Of. I mean, he, uh, I was considered fourth generation, and uh, he's 20 years younger than John Buckley and, and I, and uh, he will be, uh, in effect, the fifth generation of, of lawyers practicing in New Haven. So what was that day like? How did you guys celebrate? Well, uh, we had a small ceremony uh, in the office. Uh, one of the secretaries brought a little champagne in, and we had the proclamation, and uh, oh, nice. you know, John Buckley made a toast. <clears throat> but we had a big uh, party last week, uh, last Thursday night at Cash Republic, where we invited a lot of our, our clients and some of the court personnel, some colleagues and judges, clerks, family and friends, and uh, it was a nice occasion. Well, you know, we've had a number of lawyers on this on the show over over the past year and a half, and many of them have talked about the shrinking of of law firms. So this is a very different direction. Well, we're 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 still a small firm, but mm-hmm. that's true. A, lo- a lot of firms have consolidated uh, and disbanded, and uh, you know, New Haven <clears throat> was known for a long time of a lot of small and mid sized firms. Right. Uh, and there's 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 still a, a lot of those size firms around town and in addition to some of the, the larger firms but i think there there are a, a, a smaller number of those firms today right um so i'm really curious to hear about your great-grandfather so he started this firm in 1881 uh he became a lawyer in 1881 okay. my, my, my great-grandfather who shares my name john f Wynn, although his f stood for frederick uh, became a lawyer in 1881, and he uh, began his practice in Unionville in Connecticut. Oh, okay. Uh, he did not go to college, and he did not go to law school. He apprenticed. He apprenticed. Right. Oh, t- t- tell uh, us a little bit about that, if you know. Well, I do, and that that's in, in those <clears throat> days, uh, I believe there were some law schools around. Tapping Reeve was in Connecticut, which was the oldest law school in the country. Uh-huh. But, he, but he didn't go there. He... <clears throat> And I can't recall the name of the judge that he clerked for, but he clerked for uh, three or four years. uh, And then by virtue of that was able to take the bar exam. And he was uh, sworn in as a lawyer in in July of 1881. 
and uh, hung his shingle in, in Unionville, Connecticut, where he practiced probably for about four or five years before moving to New Haven. Right. And <clears throat> where did he live? Do you uh, know? I, I should know. Uh, he lived in Westville, I believe. Okay, and I, and right. I can't write. So I, he was I, a New Haven person. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he, when he moved from Unionville to New Haven, I believe he lived on Alden Avenue right. in New Haven. So... So back then, what it was like was you didn't necessarily go to law school. You apprenticed with a judge, or and then he that judge taught you, and then you set up shop alone. Were you a solo practitioner in effect when you were finished? He he was. I, I think you know he could have joined a firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he became a lawyer in 1881, he was one of two lawyers in that area. In That's that town. it. That that was it. Yep. So have you heard through sort of family stories what his practice was like? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I've done a fair amount of research myself because I was always interested in the family yeah. background. He started out as a general practice lawyer, uh, you know, doing a little bit of real estate, a little bit of criminal, um, <clears throat> uh, and some, some general civil stuff. He, uh, when he came to New Haven, uh, he did, uh, you know, typical practice of, you know, some criminal, some civil litigation, uh, and some real estate closing, some, some trust in the state's wills. Right. And in those days, lawyers pretty much did a little bit of everything. It's not like today where you specialize. Right. Uh, and, and the law was a lot simpler. Yes. Yes. But he was, could you explain that a little bit? Sure. I I know it's gotten obviously greater with cases and so forth, but well, I mean, there there wasn't uh, 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 all this body of, of state law and federal law and regulation that you need to know in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you would look at a, a, a legal horn book from that area. It might be, you know, 100 pages. That's it. Uh, that would be it. And it would contain all the law of that particular subject. And even even trials in those days would last typically a day. Really? Or maybe two days, whereas you might have a trial today that could last mm. weeks, you know, and some complicated trials could last a month or so. Oh, yeah, right. exactly right. That's fascinating because the issues were, were condensed probably. There were, and they just, uh, it, they didn't go into all this nuance and and lengthy, uh, you know, discourse about certain areas. It was just pretty much straightforward. I mean, he was... He was involved in a, in a personal injury matter, which is basically what uh, John Buckley, John Preach, and I do, uh, involving a kiln explosion, hmm. where he represented uh, a, a family, uh, the, the widow and her children, uh, in a situation where this this the, the father and the, the husband had, had blo- was blown up, and he did it pro bono. Uh, mm-hmm. Explain to our listeners what that means. That was he did it without charging the the family. He, he did it to help them out, and it was. In those days, you you didn't often see uh, a cases arising out of personal injury. It was that so was relative. tell us the facts of that case. Uh, as I recall, uh, he he was a worker in a kiln. Uh, you know, in a kiln, and, and you know he was forging s- some tools or something oh, like that. Okay. And there was an accident in the kiln, which resulted in him losing his life. Right. And uh, my great grandfather helped his widow and his children. He had young children bring an action against the owner of the kiln and, and they recovered. And, uh, wow. uh as I stated that y- 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 that's a personal injury claim <clears throat> and you, 
typically mm-hmm. didn't see very those claims very often in, in mm-hmm. you know in the, at the turn of the century they didn't really become in, in fashion until like the the 50s the 1950s in Connecticut right. because there weren't a lot of lawyers that would do that type of work it was kind of frowned upon yes it was kind of in fact mm-hmm. there's a, a, a a phrase for it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, if you're referring to ambulance chasing. Yes, I, yeah, I am. Well, yeah. In those days, I don't think you could chase the ambulance. It was drawn by probably a horse. A horse, right, yeah. right. The horse was easy to deal with, right. Yes, that's right. But there are legitimate cases. Absolutely. You know, and it was <clears throat> and in in the early <clears throat> days when, when those cases were brought, they weren't very lucrative. You know, and a lot, I think one of the reasons that you didn't see a lot of lawyers in those areas is because you couldn't make a living. Mm-hmm. doing that type of work right so um yeah so that 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 that's interesting this whole pro but does your firm do pro bono work on occasion we do um you know there are, sometimes we get in it uh just as a result of representing a client on a case we'll handle an, another matter and then mm-hmm. there's certain cases that um we'll get in because i want to help someone out i mean one in particular i remember uh i was asked to, to do it as a favor for one of our investigators, it was a, a gentleman that had signed a lease for some property in, in New Haven, a commercial lease, and uh, he was given keys. He started to move in, and then the landlord reneged on uh, <laughs> on the lease, and I thought I'd be able to write a couple letters and get him his security deposit back. Right. Well, uh, you know, that didn't happen. I ended up having to not only write letters but file a lawsuit, go to trial, win the trial, and then go to the appellate court before uh, he got his money back. But And that was something that, you know, I, I, I thought I would do pro bono and be able to just, you know, devote a half an hour or so of my time. And right. it turned out to be quite involved. But you know what? Uh, it became a cause and he got a good result. And I'm happy with right. I'm happy I did it. Yes, right. I mean, so you never know where it's going to go. No, it's don't. like a news story. No, it, exactly right. And uh, good for you. That's great. So then came your grandfather. Right. Okay, tell us a little bit about, the. Did he, did he go into the same firm? Sure. sure. Well, uh, it, it he became a lawyer in 1910. Uh, he was born and raised in New Haven. Uh, he did not go to college, uh, but he went to Yale Law School, and he graduated well, in 1910, uh, and then he began practicing law with my great-grandfather, and the name of the firm was Wynn and Wynn. I uh, see. Yes. And back then, and I think it may still be true, you can go to law school at Yale. I mean, maybe it's changed a little bit, but if they found someone really bright and dedicated. Yeah. I, I think that to, you still, to, to become a lawyer today in Connecticut, uh, you need to graduate from an accredited law school, law school. An ABA, American Bar Association accredited law school, uh, and you need to sit for the bar. And, and, you, and to get into a, an accredited law school, you need a four-year college degree. Oh, you do. Uh, but there's a lot of talk about uh, shortening law school. In fact, some pro- some <clears> schools, uh, I saw this the other day, are having these programs called three plus three, where you'll go three years of college and three years of law school, and you'll graduate uh, from both <laughs> those programs in six years instead of seven. Uh, when I went to school, I did the program at UConn was was the joint JD and MBA instead okay. of. Uh, you know, master in business masters of business mm-hmm. which you know is normally a two-year program law school's three right so five i did that in four they have that and a lot of schools have that joint program but uh that's something that's being considered now but back back to 1910 uh when my grandfather graduated from yale law school uh and he was sworn in in july of 1910 
he joined my great grandfather in a firm in New Haven called Win and Win. Win and Win. And, and they they tried one of the first, uh, I believe it was a it was a murder trial uh, in Connecticut in the, the courthouse at 121 Elm Street. Yes. Uh, and that courthouse <clears throat> opened in 1914, and I believe it was that trial was in 1914. Wow. Do you know anything about that trial? I, I no, I've been well, trying have, to get some have to information. That. I, I have looked into a lot of my <clears throat> grandfather's uh, <clears throat> cases uh, and some of my great grandfather cases, but I don't I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, so they were into criminal law as well. They did a little bit, like, like my great-grandfather, they did a little bit of everything. You know, uh-huh. a little criminal law, some civil law, some, you know, trusts and estates, wills, probate work, um, and just a, a general law practice. So when it was your great-grandfather and your grandfather, where were their offices in New Haven? Uh, they were at a couple of locations. Uh, I know eventually they, uh, they ended, my grandfather ended up at 205 Church Street, which is where mm-hmm. my father and I practice mm-hmm. uh, later, but I'm not quite sure the location of the firm when it, when it, and mm-hmm. when it, when it was win and win. It was downtown New Haven, mm-hmm. but I don't recall the address. Right, right. So then your father sort of says to himself, what am I going to do in life? Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> you know, my dad passed away in 2008. Oh, and when I was going through some of his paperwork that my grandmother had saved, I found a uh, a project that he had done in grade school. He was probably ten, eight or 10 years old, and it was called My Autobiography. And I was flipping through, and I had never seen this, never seen this, th- 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 these papers. And uh, in it, he wrote that he wanted to become a lawyer, like his father and his grandfather. And he wanted to work in his father's firm and he wanted to try cases. And I mean, and it was pretty neat because uh, my dad, uh, I, I would say, I mean, I always wanted to be a lawyer myself because I was around it as a, as a boy. Uh, but he didn't push me. He just let me kind of make my own decision. And I wasn't sure that that's what he always wanted to do either. And until I found those papers, uh, I saw So this that, was when he was about 10. Yeah, he was young. I was a young boy when he wrote that. And it was, yeah. <clears throat> So what were your, so, okay, so then you decided to become a lawyer. I did. Right. And, um, and your son is doing all kinds of wonderful work. I have two sons. My two. older son uh, is in Africa. He helps the uh, refugees from the Congo mm-hmm. relocate into Uganda and he gets them schooling and uh, housing. That's and I, I, I had the opportunity to visit him a couple of years ago. It was an amazing experience. My younger son, I, I hold hope out for. Maybe he's going to go into law. He's a musician. And you never know. No, and so he uh, right now is kind of uh, recording and playing in a couple of different bands uh, and hoping that he can make it in music. But uh, they both talk about law, but, uh, you know, it's uh, they got to find their own career path and find something they want to do. That's exactly right. And you never know. Sometimes they do both. There are many lawyers who are very good musicians. No, that's true. Right. <laughs> Depends which gig they want. Um, so then you uh, then you and um, John Buckley, right, teamed up in the mid-'80s? Well, yeah, the history goes, uh, my great-grandfather uh, died at age 62 in his office in front of my grandfather. It was actually pretty sad. It was sudden, too. They, they, when the firm was win and win, uh, he died, and uh, that was 1922. Uh, my grandfather had been practicing for 12 years, and mm. he then began practicing with a no- number of firms in New Haven, but he hooked up 
with a uh, a gentleman named Herb Emanuelson, and the firm became known oh, as yeah. Win and Emanuelson. Okay. Uh, it later became Emanuelson and Win when my father went to work for Attorney Emanuelson, and then later became partners with Attorney Emanuelson's son, and that was Emanuelson and Win for probably thirty five years. Yes, because I've heard it heard that that name yeah. before before my my dad and I worked for that firm for a little bit in law school mm-hmm. uh, before I graduated and then teamed up with John Buckley. But my grandfather, uh, Kenneth Wynn became a judge in 1936. Mm-hmm. So he stopped practicing and my dad didn't become he a was member in of the superior bar. court, superior court. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But then he ultimately uh, he was put on the Supreme court and became chief stuff chief justice of the Supreme court in 1957. Wow. Yeah. But my, and my dad, one of a, yeah, this Great is stories. one hell of a biography. It, it, it really is a neat story. My dad, my grandfather swore my dad in in 1951 as a lawyer, and my father swore my grandfather in as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court six years later in 1957. That's amazing. Yeah, That's it really an incredible was a, tale. A, a neat story. And then I came along in 1984, uh, and John Buckley and I started Buckley and Win in 1986. Now, did you and Mr. Buckley were you uh, at the same law school? Is that how you met? We met the first day in law school uh, in August of 1981, and we were in the same section. Uh, what did you take together? Torts. We took all. Actually, we took every class together because uh-huh. when you're in the same section, uh-huh. it's about 15 students in a section. You take every course with the, the members of your section. So, right. uh, and we both. You know, played hockey in college. We, you know, we had a lot of uh, similarities, and we and we we became good friends. I mean, and that and that day, I re- now remember that day that we met in uh, August of 1981. That's great. That's great. So now, 1986 to now is roughly 30 years, right? That's correct. Yeah. A lot has changed in the law since the time you came in. Would you tell your our listeners what what makes what was the biggest impression? What was the biggest change for a small law firm? 1986, you're coming in as just graduating from law school. What well, happened? You know, you have seen a lot of changes. I mean, I, to go back to my dad's days, he would talk about, you know, they didn't have copiers. You know, they didn't have fax machines. You know, the sec- they, they did dictation and they had carbon but yes, paper. Yes, they dictated. And actually, it's sort of interesting you say that because some... Some lawyers I know grew up dictating and in dictating, you sort of use a different part of your brain and you can do things really quickly. Have you noticed that? I, I have. I, you know, my, my dad wasn't much of a dictator. He tend to had wrote all his stuff out. His partner was a big dictator, you know? Uh, and I recall as a boy going into the office and watching the secretaries banging away on the typewriters using carbon paper. Yes, exactly. And, uh, but you know, though, when I started practicing, uh, you know, we had moved on. There were copiers, although the technology was better. It still wasn't what it's like today. Right. Uh, but I mean, you know, you can look at one aspect, just the technology, which is incredible. And that helps a small practitioner do a lot of things. But in terms of the general practice of law, you know, uh, there was a lot of differences. I mean, I think it was more collegial back in 1984 when I started mm-hmm. uh, in New Haven and most areas of the state, they would have a weekly jury call, which would bring all the lawyers together and you pretty much knew everybody. Right. Today you only get to know a lawyer if you have a case with a lawyer. Right. Uh, right. There'd be a big it, room and you'd get in there and you'd sort of chat. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it was great. It was a social thing and part of a business too. 
And another big change was the short calendar, which was around for a long time, which was a weekly motion calendar for mostly discovery problems on cases. And that would bring the lawyers together, but they changed the rules to uh, shortcut a lot of that and eliminate a lot of the, uh, the issues that arose in handling a case. And it really has streamlined the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a a lot of those changes have uh, not allowed the lawyers to come together. Mm -hmm. So you don't, you don't see them. And I think when you had a face to face, uh, meeting with a lawyer uh, and became, got to know how their weekend was and what things going on with their family, mm-hmm. you know, it became easier to to work with them. Right, and it, it created the ability to have relationships. So if you were, you could discuss issues that were common to the bar. Yeah, and, and, and that's true. And I, you know, luckily I've been, you know, practicing for, you know, 32 years. I've been able to do that. And I, and I like the, the way that things used to be, but those are my contemporaries that I've known for a long time that we, you know, we have these relationships and it makes, if, if you get along with your adversary, it makes it a lot easier to handle the case and, and typically for both of you. Right. You know? And, and if you have a long standing relationship, which has grown up in and around the court, you can, you can maneuver in a different way. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Uh, so what does that mean for young attorneys coming up now? I mean, how do they, achieve that without you know it's hard it's hard for young attorneys today i mean it's uh lawyers very specialized you know if you're going to practice law you either have to get good at something mm-hmm. and knowledgeable in a particular area to make yourself marketable mm-hmm. uh, but it's they don't get a lot of court exposure because there's not a lot of trials and if right. there are the trials typically the senior attorneys will take them so um you know i was fortunate to be exposed to it as a young as a young boy, cause I used to watch trials. I had a number of jobs in the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Plus I worked for firms that allowed me to try cases, you know, early in my career. Mm-hmm. So you, you got to learn the skills that, that you need to be able to do that type of work. Right. For the young lawyers today, it, it's hard, but it's, you know, there's, there's not a lot of trials today. I mean, different areas uh, will spawn more trials, but the civil uh, personal injury stuff, you probably see, less than two or 3% of the cases mm. actually go to trial. So therefore lawyers are not learning that skill set. They are not. No. And it, it, it's, it's kind of a young uh, lawyers. I mean, yeah. that's true. It, it, you know, it's, huh. it, it's, 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 it's a die. They call it the vanishing trial, you know, that it's, it's a dying trial. area, but, but uh-huh. you know, you need to have those skills because uh, occasionally you need to do it. And we, in our practice, we typically prepare our cases as if they're all going to go to trial. Right, that, that used to be result. the sort of the rule because you never knew. That's true, right? Um, right, and and maybe that's because there's such the dockets are so much larger. Well, you, you know, I was thinking about that. Uh, I don't know that they are. You know, when I first started practicing, uh, the average age of the case was probably about three or four years old before it came up to trial, and some of those cases would be as old as ten, ten years old. And was uh, this civil? The civil, yes, the civil okay. case flow. The criminal cases were, you know, there was a you know, constitutional right to a speedy trial, right, and the the, the docket would put would move a little faster. But uh, this, some of the civil cases when I became practicing were were older than ten years. And mm-hmm. now you look at it, probably the oldest case in the system, in in even in New Haven, is probably three or four years. There may be some exceptions to that, but. 
they've done a great job moving that docket. And I, mm-hmm. I think the numbers of filings are actually down, huh, interesting. you know, relative to what they were. If you, if you look at those statistics that the judicial department puts out. Mm-hmm. So uh, your firm has certain specialties, correct? We do. I mean, we're, we're basically a civil personal injury boutique law firm uh, that handles cases such as motor vehicle accidents, falls, product liability, medical malpractice, professional malpractice that might include, you know, legal malpractice or accounting malpractice, engineering mm-hmm. malpractice, uh, mm-hmm. any area of, of professional malpractice, and, and pretty much uh, some workers' compensation, uh, any cases that arise out of uh, instance where someone is was injured. Where someone was injured, right. Like your great-grandfather's issue. Right, with, the, with the kiln. And occasionally... <laughs> Uh, I'll do some, you know, some commercial litigation or I will do, uh, you know, some low end criminal stuff like the stuff in the, in the G- GA, the geographical area. And, and I think one of the reasons I explain GA to our well, the, the, in Connecticut, the superior court is organized into to two levels. It's mm-hmm. the JD or judicial district, which typically handles the, the civil jury cases and the larger Right, or, you know, more That's serious on Church Street. criminal cases, the felonies. Mm-hmm. Whereas the the geographical areas are handle motor vehicle infractions, minor criminal. Some some the housing court is there in some right. jurisdictions. But one of the things I I enjoy about doing uh, the GA geographical area work is that it makes me walk into that courthouse in New Haven at one twenty one Elm Street. Right, and every time I do that, I think that you know. Uh, all my uh, my ancestors, you know, the the, the lawyers and that practice have all practiced in that courthouse. They've all walked up those steps. All walked up those steps, and every time I walk in that building, I, I have that feeling. That's and, wonderful. And and they've all we've all tried cases in that courthouse. Right, right. You know, I recently I I think it was about a year ago, I I gained access to the library there because it's closed now. They use it as storage. Huh. Uh, but one of the Where judges is it, upstairs. On the... It's it's on the third floor. Okay. And it overlooks the green, and it's a beautiful. Uh, it's closed. Room. Closed because they use it for stores. The, the oh. bar library is now housed in the courthouse on Church Street, two thirty four Church Street. So, uh, but that building, you know, that cor- the, the library is where my dad, my grandfather, my great grandfather would go to research cases, and uh, I was, you know, uh, snooping around there hoping I'd find some some old trinket. You know, that was left <laughs> over. No, I didn't find it. Were you a good sleuthy reporter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the books are still there? There are a lot of books there. A lot of them are outdated. They moved the books mm-hmm. over to the courthouse the uh, on Church Street when they when they opened that, right. I believe, in 1974. Well, that's great. So of the areas, of specialty areas that you just described, uh, which ones stand out as the areas that have undergone the greatest change, reform, direction of... Well, uh, I mean, from from what I do, you know, personally. What is what is you? What do you like to do best? What's your? It, it's what the firm does. Is it's is personal injuries helping people personal injury. okay. that have been injured in an incident, you know, either a car accident or a fall, mm-hmm. and and trying to you know getting them back on their feet, both you know figuratively and literally, and seeking compensation for them. We help them, you know, process their medical bills, find sources for payment for that. If it's an auto accident, get their car fixed, you know, help them 
you know, seek out medical care if they're mm-hmm. struggling, you know, mm-hmm. finding a doctor that can handle their particular issue and then prosecuting their case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be, you know, going to court, you may be taking on a, an insurance company or a big, you know, local business establishment, uh, uh, and hopefully getting them, them a good recovery mm-hmm. to get to mm-hmm. put their life back together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a long process. It can be. Yeah. Now some of the case, some of the smaller cases will, you know, you'll move quicker, but the larger cases generally have to run through the system and either get, as we say, get to the steps of the courthouse before they're resolved. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. They just come that moment when they do or die. Right. <laughs> but you talk about, technology and some of the things that you can do with some of the computer stuff. Here's one example of, of a case kind of that I like to tell. Uh, you know, I had a woman that came in and she had fallen in a parking lot at a restaurant and it was on Christmas Eve day. Hmm. And she, she, she slipped on a, a big uh, piece of ice and hit her head Ooh. and she was knocked out and uh, she was injured pretty badly. Taken to the uh, hospital, the police came and investigated the accident and they noted in the uh, in their report that there was a big sheet of ice in this area next to where her car was parked. So as I'm getting the intake, you know, you need to prove that the ice was there for a long period of time, or that the owner of the business knew about it. Right. So I and failed I, to act. And failed exactly. So mm-hmm. I said, you know, we hadn't had much bad weather lately. So I pull up the uh, weather re- information on the computer, which you have access to. And I'm looking and I see it's cold, but no precipitation for three weeks. Oh. And I'm saying, you know, and no, and nothing on the ground either. No snow. So I'm, geez, I go, where, where would that count come from? And I'm thinking, well, maybe one of the customers, you know, just, you know, poured out a soda or something they were drinking and it, and it froze there. And I said, yeah, it's possible. So I, I also get on one of the other sites, a Google earth site, and I'm looking at the, the top of the building. Looking the top at, of the building, the, at the, like roof the roof of the building, okay. saying that maybe there was, I want to see what kind of equipment up there. Maybe they have a problem with a, a, a furnace or an air conditioning unit that had discharged there. And so I get in the car and I drive there uh, to the scene. And this is literally like an hour I got off the phone with this potential client. And I'm looking around and I'm looking in the window and I see in the window, I see a, 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 a bucket and some mops, uh, you know, where they used to clean up the floor. And I go over to the area where this woman fell and I see like some dried soap on, uh, on the area next to this, to this drain. And I'm thinking, I wonder if they pour that water outside out the window after, you know, out the door, you know, after they clean the floor. So Uh I'm thinking, I bet you that's what they do. So I sent my investigator out there to stake that area out and take film video to watch of, their practice to watch their daily practice watch their practice and sure enough about two days later th- about four in the morning they come out and they they pour this water out in that area and because of the way that the uh, parking lot is set up it it pools there it ponds and it froze and we brought that cl- case against that that company and they you know we got a very good result of that because we were able to do that but if i didn't have access to all of that the weather, instant information about the weather and Google Earth and got in my car and gone to look at that, I, I would have never been able to figure out right. how, how that um, uh, how that area where she fell, how it, how it, how it the, came the, about. How yes. the ice and you had it there. quickly. We, we knew about it, well, a little bit, but it, it did. And that's... So to speak. Yeah. Yep. 
And, and that's, you know, that, yeah, that was a feather in my cap. I like telling that story because a lot of lawyers would, would not have done that much that early. They, they would not have gone out. Probably not. They would have just waited. Your grandfather might have. I, yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't know about my dad, <laughs> oh, but yeah. my, my grandfather would have. But, but having access to even like these Google Earth and some of the technology that's out there, particularly that Google Earth, we can look at intersections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm. we can we can look mm. and you can also date it because you can go back what it looked like in 2000 or what it looked like in, in you know, 1995. Right, right. Some of the old and uh, having that information available allow you know allows us the small lawyer to compete with the big firms that have all that technology. Right, but can technology is there is there a downside to technology? What if the client can use the smartphone to just bug you to get going? I mean, is there a change in how clients um, respond because of technology? Well, in terms of, you know, we generally don't give the cell phone numbers out to the clients. Anymore. Uh, no, <laughs> some of them get them, but, you know, we get right. a lot of clients want to know what's going on with their case. But I, I think the technology actually helps us because uh, once a case is filed in, in court, they can get on the judicial branch website like anybody can, and they can look at the status of their case. That's right. See what's filing, you know, where, where's the, you know, where it is in the court system. Uh, and, you know, we, we can also, uh, they can emails, which is great. If a lot of times we will send via email copies of the documents or the correspondence we send on their case. So they'll, I will typically CC my clients that want to be more involved in their case. So they know what's Mm. going on. So I don't have to pick up the phone and call them. Right. And does that, and that saves a fee. Saves a fee. Most, most of what we do is contingency. We don't uh, explain, let's explain to the listener what contingency means. Cause I don't know. Exa- I know exactly what it means, but I don't know if it's changed over the years in Connecticut. Sure. Uh, well, most personal injury lawyers take cases on a contingency, which is a percentage of the recovery. Right. Uh, and you know, and what it, is the percentage now? It, it's typically a third, but in Connecticut we have a statute that it's a sliding scale. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, for certain cases, it's a third of the first 300,000 then it goes 25% of the next 300, oh. then 20 of the next 300, then 15, then 10% over cases where the recovery is over a million too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but the lawyer is free to negotiate any fee as long as it doesn't violate the contingency fee statute. Uh, and so the client doesn't have to come up with any money to hire the lawyer mm-hmm. that, that's handling mm-hmm. that matter. And the lawyer doesn't have to keep track of their time and, Typically, we have to wait until the matter is resolved before we get paid. And we, that could take some time. Could take years. Yes, and the client understands that. They do. Right, right. Because sometimes they don't. No, and but a lot you, of matters, but, not personal injury matters, but most commercial matters are handled on an hourly basis mm-hmm. where the lawyer will take a retainer and then bill at an at a, at a, an Yeah, the billable fee. hour blues, we call it. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and I've, I had a, some experience in doing that years ago. <laughs> Uh, when John Buck and I first started, we did do some billable hour work uh, for a number of years, uh, and then we kind of moved away from that to do the type of work we're doing today. Yeah, because it sort of gets you, I would think, after a while. It gets a little crazy. Yeah, you know what? The the, the practice is, is hard enough, and focusing on doing your work for your clients and your research and stuff, uh, and not to be worried about having to 
you know, log in every six minutes or 10 minutes or whatever, right, how you right, do it. Right, right, We've had some lawyers on the, and they say it's just, it, it's crazy. It just, not, but they've gotten, I mean, the software for that is now better. You can log it in on your computer and your computer will generate your bills. Mm-hmm. When we did it, it used to be, you know, handwritten timesheets that then had to be, you know, uh, inputted into a computer system mm-hmm. and then the bills had to be generated and you don't get paid for, you know, preparing your bills and it would take a lot of time. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's, it's so it's it's mostly contingency. Pretty much everything we do is contingency. Right. What cases do you like the most? What do you like to do? I I like cases that have uh legal issues in them that are challenging. You know, um mm-hmm. Recently I had a case where a boy was killed on a jet ski. It was a horrible accident involving two boys and it happened uh on a lake between Virginia and North Carolina, right around the the middle of the lake, which is what separates the two states. And the states had different laws. North Carolina had a complete ban against comparative negligence. Virginia was different. Uh, And because of the size of the lake uh, and the fact that there was some interstate travel on it, we were able to convince the judge that they had to apply admiralty law in the case, uh, which circumvented you know, the law in North Carolina and we ended up getting a good recovery. And I, and I like those kind of cases because they're intellect, intellectually challenging uh, because of the legal issues involved. Yes. Now, do they, did this, this particular case involve folks from this area? Yes. Yes. They they were from Connecticut. They were from Connecticut. That's how you got the case. Yes. Right. And that took you to another. Yeah. And, and Mm. both of the boys that were riding the jet skis were Connecticut residents. So, Uh Uh, in order to get jurisdiction of a case, you need to have personal jurisdiction as well as subject matter jurisdiction. Mm. And to get jurisdiction in Connecticut courts, I needed both of those parties to be residents of Connecticut, which they were. Right, right. And then you could seek to go into those courts and... And we brought it into Connecticut, but Connecticut was required to apply, in this case, federal law, but parts of it, they applied... the. Uh, South Carolina and Virginia law on other issues in the case, a very interesting case, but those are the types of cases that I like to work on are ones where there are challenging legal issues. Yes. Yes. Um, and your other attorneys in your new firm, what, 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 we what all pretty much do the same thing. John, John Buckley and John Parisi. Uh, and I all work on similar types of stuff. And I bet you they would say the same thing that they, they like working on cases that, uh, are not your run of the mill, maybe automobile accident or fall down something there was where there's a little more of a legal challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't always make the best case for business because it takes more time, uh, but it allows you to at least apply, you know, your, your thinking, le- your legal smarts and your thinking. Yeah, yes. Right. Right. It allows you to go to a different place. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It's not unlike what we do when we want to explore some particular topic. Um, so as you look at uh, law firms now in New Haven and, and Connecticut in general, but let's just take New Haven, um, are you optimistic about growth? Are kids interested in, um, I know you do some volunteer work, are they interested in the law? Are they yeah, I, I think, well, generally in terms of the law, you know, you've seen the uh, enrollment go down. I think it's coming back up a little bit, but I remember talking to the dean at the, uh, the UConn Law School, uh, where I went, that the enrollment was down, but it's starting to pick back up. And 
a lot of the lawyers that graduated from Connecticut and Quinnipiac, where John Preece went, stay in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Connecticut has a lot of lawyers, uh, and you know because of the business climate, and you know businesses moving out and some of the economy shrinking, uh, there aren't as many opportunities. But I, I there are in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But in in New Haven, <clears throat> I think uh, you know it's a lot of small mid-sized firms mm-hmm. in New Haven uh, and there are not as many job opportunities as they were when I began. I, I remember that. Right. So right. A, a lot of the young lawyers work as clerks in the courthouse hoping yes. to get uh, a job with, with one of the firms. And and one thing too, and this you hear talked about a lot is a lot of the lawyers stay practicing until, you know, the, well into their eighties. Well, I know that's There's, a change. Don't you think? I, I do. My dad practiced till he was 87. Uh, but I, I do think that's a change. You don't, some of the larger firms have, uh, uh, mandatory retirements, mm-hmm. uh, where you can stay on perhaps of counsel, but mm-hmm. a lot of lawyers, and I think a lot of lawyers, even in their, in their seventies are working full time, uh, a, a lot, a lot for economic reasons because they need mm-hmm. to still work. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I've noticed, uh, when I've attended, um, some classes at Brantford high and, and just in general, that kids really like mock debates and they like, they like, they like that kind of thing. Do, does your firm get involved? Yeah. My, my partner, John Buckley is a big proponent of that. He's volunteered, uh, for some of the mock trial stuff with the high school. I've done some of the, of that mock trial work at Yale. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, it's very rewarding, but I, I, uh, he does it at the high school level and those kids, uh, do a really good job. He really enjoys that uh, because I think uh, a lot of them do find uh, th- that work very interesting. And I think it uh, leads them to perhaps wanting to pursue a, a career in law. Yes. Particularly if they can get up and they can speak and figure out an argument, right? Yeah. No, I think it builds confidence in them. You see a lot of the shows on TV, the CSI, the, the law shows. Right. Uh, a lot of them uh, are very popular. And yeah, they may not be accurate, but they're, but they're, they, they're enticing. They are. And I think the kids <laughs> want to do that. I, I, I think, yeah, it's, it, he does really a good job with the kids. Right. Have you noticed among uh, younger, um, well, you don't necessarily have a whole slew of them because you're a small firm, but do you think that work habits have changed among younger lawyers? Do they... Are they uh, are they pulled in different directions now more so than when you were a young well, I think you know they uh, law can be very demanding, but I I think with with the advent of mm-hmm. the computer and computerized research, when I first became practicing, we did it with books. The, the computer research was just coming on around. Right there was right there were no yeah you had to go to a book. Right. But now it's amazing, and you know we would handwrite these briefs and you know, cutting pastings together right now with pushing buttons. Uh, and these, the, the students that come out today are, are really savvy with the, with the computers and the equipment and the computer research, and they right. can get a lot of stuff done a, a lot faster than, right. than we could. Right. Uh, but in terms of the time demands, it's still, you know, long hours typically, uh, because hmm. y- you know, you want to finish, finish a project. And I, my philosophy always was, I, I, I never let the mail go unopened. It always had to be open the day it came in and had to be reviewed. And if, and huh. if I can, and I, and I try to stick to this is return every phone call that you get that day, the day of the phone call. But now you can send them uh, an email or you can send, uh, you know, a text message. Uh-huh. You can at least have some contact. Right. How do you, how is texting influence law? 
Well, I, you know, if, I think, it, if it has, I'm curious about that. I think more so for the, the younger lawyers, I don't tend to text a lot to my clients, uh-huh. uh, more email, mm-hmm. but you, you know, there are, we've noticed, uh, you know, we do a fair amount of advertising in the yellow pages and on television mm-hmm. and the way we typically would get a response was a phone call. But now, now we will get either uh, a text message or we'll get an, an, an email to the firm where someone's soliciting our business. And I will typically respond saying, call me, you know, I, I want to talk to you, you know, cause do they like to do that? Well, some do. And then some, we find that it, they want to have all their communication through some electronic form and that's okay, but you need, you know, huh. you need to meet your client, you know, at least initially and, right. get, you know, get some background information. And it's amazing how much, you know, information you can get from that personal encounter or from just talking on the phone yes. that you might not get. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, for instance, I was, you know, having uh, email contact with a potential client. This was just a couple of weeks ago on a, a case involving, I believe it was her brother. And we're focusing on one thing in the case. And I, I pick up the phone and we start talking. And sure enough, uh, the case turns out to be something totally different because huh. we, we back up you know, and it was, it was a potential mal- medical malpractice issue about how he was treated in a facility. And then I learned that he was at uh, a group home where he fell down the stairway, which is what brought him to the hospital. Uh, and the stairway was having some construction and they removed the railing. I said, that's what the case is about. Not, yes. And so it, if we didn't have uh, that personal phone conversation, I would have never learned that information. Right. And so it's sort of fascinating because I'm presuming this was a younger person. Yes. Um, uh, because getting them on the phone is not easy and, and you can draw them out as, as you did. So that's another sort of fascinating development. They'd much rather text or not talk at all. Oh, and that, that is the, the new wave, but, and that's okay for initial context, but you know, you, you can potentially miss information. Right. And, so you uh, have to get them to, to talk. Yes. Whereas your great grandfather, your grandfather, and even your father, but that was never an issue, obviously. No, but and sometimes, <laughs> and that used to, even with my dad, they'd bring the client in and they'd talk for an hour, then they'd go out to lunch for another <laughs> hour. And I'll talk to the client for 15 or 20 minutes more if needed. And then the lunch is probably 10 minutes. Right. That's a very good uh, analysis. That's very interesting in terms of the wheel coming full circle in the, in the, in, in the world of law. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, going forward, you're optimistic about law firms. Uh, I am, I, you know, I think, you know, uh, people always need lawyers. Uh, the world is more complicated. There's more, more laws. Even if Donald Trump's going to say he's going to get rid of regulations, there's always going to be laws, federal state laws, and you, you need, they're very complicated and you need someone that that has the experience and the knowledge about those laws to help you with your problems. Right. And to reach out to the community and to kids in it, which you guys do well Yeah, and, and, and keep it going. Um, well, this has really been fascinating and I want to congratulate you on, uh, on, on your new and evolving name uh, of your law firm and, uh, and Mayor Harp as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're very proud. John <coughs> Parisi was a perfect fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our firm, you know, we redesigned our logo and have our new stationery and our new website will be up uh, shortly. And uh, I'm sure. And know, where are your offices now? 
Uh, well, our main office is in New Haven uh-huh. on State Street, but we do have an office uh, in Hartford and Stanford that we use if we have cases going down in that courthouse and to meet <clears throat> to meet clients. Right. Well, <clears throat> it looks like our <clears throat> oh, excuse me our time is up. It goes fast when the topics are so interesting, and we really have long learned a lot because you have a long history and a long deep breath of law in in New Haven. So we want to thank John Wynn for joining us here in our studio uh, to give us his insight into this, uh, into his newly renamed law firm and and history and family. Um, go to the newhavenindependent.org um, website and you can get a podcast of this broadcast and you can listen to a variety of shows that the station is producing each day. Thank you so much, John, for joining us in the studio today. You're welcome and thank you for having me. <laughs>